flames began to engulf the church. You can almost picture the blaze as it spread up the walls of the clabbered church, the white paint bubbling and buckling and peeling back, turning black around windows, the the crowd running around with buckets and pails of water trying to bring it under control. The Reverend Wade Watts, we have his photo here. Uh, If we can pull that slide up, uh, media shout. Maybe we don't. There he is. Reverend Wade Watts was the pastor at Jerusalem Baptist Church in McAllister, Oklahoma. He was also state president of the Oklahoma chapter of the NAACP. And one day in the future, his nephew, J.C. Watts, would become a member of Congress. But back in those days, for Wade Watts, they were very dark days, surrounded by hatred. Wade Watts had known hardship his entire life. He was born in 1919. He He remembered as a young boy how he made friends with a white boy and was invited to the white boy's home to play. The young boy's mother came to the door and told the boys that lunch was ready, and so Wade went inside to the kitchen and washed his hands, and he sat down at one of the chairs at the kitchen table where there were two plates set out for lunch when his friend pulls on his shirt and says, Wade, Wade, you don't sit there. That, those are the spots reserved for me and my mama. Your spot's outside on the back porch. And as Wade went out to the back porch, uh, his friend's mother was there and handed him a dish of food, and he sat alone on the back porch eating his lunch. All the while, a dog was coming up to him, growling at him, scratching at him, pulling at him, trying to get his food. Finally, his friend came outside and said, Wade, the reason the dog is giving you so much trouble is because that's the dog's dish that you're eating out of. In his 30s, Wade was called into Christian ministry. Uh, He was a man who knew what it was like to be turned away at restaurants, to suffer the disgrace of segregated schools that were never equal to be treated as less than a human. And as he watched his church burning on that day, as he saw his congregation of followers of Jesus trying to save the structure, Wade knew exactly who was behind it. Johnny Lee Clary, a former wrestler and the local leader of the Ku Klux Klan, had burned a cross on the lot across from Wade's house while his family, his wife, and 13 children watched through the windows. Clary had accosted him in restaurants. He'd harassed him at his home. He'd left garbage in his yard, and he'd dropped dead animals on his doorstep for his children to find. And now, Johnny Lee Clary had torched his church. Shortly after these events, Johnny Lee Clary would be named Imperial Wizard of the Grand Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And Reverend Wade Watts watched the flames climbing up the side of his church. What does it look like? to love someone who burns down your church? What is it like to love an embittered racist? What does it look like to love an abuser? That's what Wade Watts would have to ask every day for the rest of his life. What does it look like for you and for me to live as those who are loved in the face of people who mistreat us? That's what we're going to be asking today. We're going to read... In Luke chapter 6, if you want to follow along, Luke 6, 27 to 36, we're going to read the words of a man who understood very well what it's like to face suffering and hardship and abuse. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. I want you to uh, uh, do not judge. Actually, we'll go back, but I did have that written down. Uh, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, it'll be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will also be measured to you. This is Christ's word. us this morning. Now I want you to close your eyes if you're willing. Close your eyes for a moment and I want you to picture a face. I want you to picture the face of the person who has hurt you the most deeply in your life. It may be for some of you two faces or three faces. The face of someone who used you who disrespected you, who rejected you, someone who failed to protect you, someone who did real damage. Perhaps for some of you it is a relative, perhaps a parent or an uncle or a cousin, maybe your own child. For others of you it's an employer, a superior, a co-worker or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a fiancé, a spouse, a lover. Perhaps it was someone with power, someone who was going to put you in your place, someone who hurt you deeply, somebody who kicked you to the curb, somebody who wasn't there for you when you needed them. Maybe it was more than one, but I want you for a moment to picture their face. I'm hesitant because very often these are big wounds, and my very few words may risk seeming to minimize what it is that you have experienced. I remember several years ago reporting for jury duty downtown. You can open your eyes now. That face is still going to be with you. It's been there your whole life. I remember reporting for jury duty one, one year, and, uh, and they were selecting a jury pool, and they were trying to figure out who to eliminate and who could they, they could include within the pool. And the case involved a man who was accused of abusing his own daughter. And the judge asked everyone in the room... If you have ever experienced something like this, to please raise your hand. And half the room raised their hand. And then the judge began questioning, polling each of those people, prospective jurors who raised their hand and said, "Uh, Are you able 
to judge this case bias, uh, without bias based upon your experience. Everyone would have to say yes or they'd say no. And they got the one woman, uh, a Latin American, her English wasn't good. Uh, she had her hair up in a bun, middle-aged. And, and, and the judge asked, are you able to judge this case without bias based upon your experience? And the woman mumbled something. It wasn't intelligible. She began crying. The judge became impatient. She asked her to come forward. The judge said, now come forward to the bench. I need to ask you questions. And she said, have you, have you been the victim of abuse by a member of your family? And the woman couldn't speak. She was frozen. You began to see her rocking back and forth, forward and back. And finally, as the judge that was demanding information from her, she, she burst out in tears and cried out with a, a blood-curdling scream, Yes! And then you could hear her as her head hit the podium on her way down to the ground. She was out cold as bailiffs were running everywhere. And as the the, the judge uh, declared recess, this woman had probably never before told anyone what had been done to her by a family member. Whatever face has come to your mind this morning, Jesus does want to speak into that. For some, it's a person who's long gone not here anymore. For others, it's somebody that you see tomorrow in the office or that you go home to or that you're sitting next to right now. What does Jesus say in these situations? He says three things. First, Jesus says, I want you to call them enemies. Jesus is saying, I want you to put this person in the right category. Otherwise, what I'm going to say next is going to have absolutely no power in your life. This is difficult because for some of you, this person may be your daddy or your uncle or your wife or your boss or a teacher. You may have very confused, very mixed emotions when you think about them, affection and resentment. But but Jesus is saying in verse 27, the label I want you to give this person is your enemy. Look at how Jesus describes them. He says in in verse 28 that they're people who strike you on the cheek. That was a, a way of saying they insult you. He says that they're people who take your tunic. That is, they'll run right over your boundaries, no matter how personal they may be. He says these are people who curse you. They speak negatively of you. They mistreat you in verse 28. In verse 35, he calls them wicked. I remember Jerem Bars at the seminary, um, in his perfect English accent, talking about a, a, a situation he had where he was counseling a woman in a very difficult marriage. And the woman was fixated on, on how unfair her husband was, how awful he treated her. And, 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 and Jerem stopped her for a second and said, No, no, Marlene, what your husband has done to you is wicked before God. And it deserves absolute judgment before a holy and righteous and loving God. What he's done to you merits him to be cast, and he said cast because he was English, cast into hell itself. And the woman stopped her. She said, whoa, whoa, I wouldn't say all of that. I wouldn't go that far. He's actually very good with the children. You see, we we tend to minimize injustice. We tend to minimize very often our pain. And uh, I remember Ray Cortis, a, a pastor, talking about uh, when he first got counseling, and it was a, a counseling done over the phone with a, a distance counselor and because uh, of where he was at the time. And, and the, he, he confessed to the counselor. He said, well, I guess the basic issue here is that 
I don't really love people very well. The counselor was silent. He said, okay, so you hate people. No, 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 I wouldn't say that. No, the problem is that there's this skill of loving people that I've made some accomplishment at, but I'm, I'm not really as good at it as I should be. No, so you hate people. You see, that's the, what the Bible says. Well, Greg, no, this is just something where, where, where maybe people have their own interests and their own concerns. They, they overlook your needs and don't really provide you the love that they should. That's, that's Sure, that's what the Bible calls hate because you're obligated to love one another. And when people aren't loving you as you deserve, as the image of God, they are hating you. We've got to be honest and, and stop brushing stuff under the carpet. Jesus is saying, I want you to call them enemies. I remember when I was a kid, um, I was probably nine years old, maybe ten, and uh, I was at a cousin's house. There were two cousins, the older one and the younger one, and then me and my brother, who were younger than them, I was the younger brother, and we were playing cowboys and uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, my childhood gets more racist by the day as I think about it. But uh, I, as the younger sibling, I was paired up with the younger cousin, who was, of course, six or seven years older than me. He was a teenager. And we were the indigenous peoples. And, uh, and I remember, you know, we had to go hide, and the cowboys were going to come and take over our land and kick us out. And uh, I remember this older cousin was a teenager. He said, I've got the perfect hiding space. And he took me into a bale of hay behind a shed, completely enveloped. And there in it were the sorts of magazines that you should never, ever, ever show to a small child. And he began to point at different pictures, some male, some female. And he began to ask me all sorts of questions, and he sidled up next to me, and he put his arm around me. And I think it was at that moment that a wasp stung me, and I screamed and ran back to the house. And I will always be thankful for that wasp because it wasn't for several years that I real until several years later that I realized exactly what that cousin was trying to do. And I remember when I got back to the house and explained later on what had actually happened in detail to the relevant parental authority, I remember what I heard was, well, you shouldn't have been alone with him, and we don't really want to hear of this again. Blame the victim. Silence the victim. That's how our culture deals with abuse. Uh, Jesus is saying something to us. He's saying these are the kind of people who should make you angry. Jesus is speaking to you. He's saying you have to understand evil is real. Evil is there in the human heart. You have enemies. They're real enemies. They are people who will hurt you. Some of you, maybe you're young, you're early in your career, and you haven't experienced this, but you will experience someone who has it in for you. They want to destroy your career in academia. They will want to destroy your career in the workplace. They will want to destroy your family. They will want to destroy your reputation. And Jesus is saying, when you come across that person, you have to label them correctly. You have to be real. There is terrible evil. Do not pretend otherwise. Identify them as your enemies. Years ago, I was in a counseling situation, um, and uh, one of the other people there said, see, Greg's problem is he's angry. I was like, I'm, I'm not angry. I can be very diplomatic. I'm not angry. I just have some concerns. And then a counselor just stopped me and said, Greg, 
if you're not angry, there's something wrong because you're being treated pretty poorly right here. And if I were treated that way, I would be angry too because anger is the appropriate God-given response to injustice. It's not always sinful. It can become sinful when you dwell on it and you don't forgive, but anger is a natural response to injustice. Enemies are real, Jesus is saying. I want you to give them the proper label, no sugarcoating, no religious naivete. Realize what you've been through may be worse than you realize, and it's not okay. Jesus is saying the biblical term, my term for that is enemy, and until you can bring yourself to confront the injustice and to apply the right label, nothing else Jesus says will have any power in you at all. First point, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, first, I want you to call them your enemy. Second, I want you to love them. Wait a minute, Greg. What if there's a power differential here? What does it mean to love your enemy in that instance? Well, let's talk first about what loving your enemy does not mean. Loving your enemy does not mean forgiving and forgetting in the sense of just brushing it off like nothing happened. Uh, Christ calls us to confront when we're victimized. That's Matthew 18. When your brother sins against you, go and confront him. And if he doesn't hear you, then bring someone else along. And if he still doesn't hear it, take the whole church. It assumes a level of confrontation. Yeah, the Bible says that love covers over a multitude of sins, but the Bible also assumes that when you cover over that multitude of sins, that the sins have been addressed and that you're burying them dead. If you bury them alive, then, then they're going to come back to haunt you. You are sowing a future zombie apocalypse, and those sins are going to be following you the rest of your life. They're going to come out in your marriage. They're going to come out in your, 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 your parenting. They're going to come out in your career. They're going to affect you emotionally, psychologically. They're going to come out in your health if you don't deal with them. It uh, doesn't mean forgiving and forgetting. I, I remember a, a couple in an abusive relationship that I counseled years ago, and and I was tagged with counseling the guy, and another pastor kind of dealt with the, the woman. And, uh, and like a lot of abusive uh, uh, people, he, he was a very insecure man on the inside, uh, and he was terrified of losing this relationship. And, and so, of course, he would then sabotage it by trying to control her. And uh, you could almost see he was so afraid of losing her that that wheel of power and control would just set in motion and he would every time she started to pull away he would he would do whatever it was necessary to bring her back into compliance uh he would absolutely destroy her verbally and uh, i remember one instance after he had just said horrible things to her and just destroyed her emotionally and then he was convicted by it because i think he was a believer and he went and he he asked her forgiveness and, 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 and she forgave him, and then he wanted another date, and she said no. And he came to me, and he was angry, and he was frustrated. He says, like, she won't forgive me. I said I'm sorry. I feel awful. She won't forgive me. And I had to say, dude, she's forgiven you. <laughs> but that doesn't mean she wants to be in relationship with you. Forgiveness means she's letting go of her right to judge you and seeking blessing on you. But you just burned down her house, and you're asking her, to loan you a gallon of gasoline and a lighter. That'd be foolish. It doesn't mean forgiving and forgetting. It also doesn't mean being a good little boy or good little girl, uh, not rocking the boat, because Jesus, when he saw money changers set up in the court of the Gentiles, he was not a good little boy. He turned over their tables. Uh, You know, to, to just be passive maintains an unjust status quo. Jesus said, 
that you do have enemies. And he said, you shall be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And so be on guard. Loving your enemy also doesn't mean yielding to whatever they want. Uh, understand that Jesus, in verse 29, is, is using hyperbole. He's using rhetorical overstatement. If they, if they steal your outer coat, give them your suit, too. Yeah, if they slap you on one side, say, oh, could you slap this one too? He's, he's using rhetorical overstatement in order to drive home the point. It's like when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He doesn't really want you to cut your hand off. He's trying to make the point uh, 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 that he's already made. And in this case, uh, we're going to talk about what it does mean to actually love your enemy. But uh, there are all sorts of biblical examples of those who have used loving disruption or disobedience uh, in the face of injustice. I, I think of the Hebrew midwives when, when the, the, the political powers in Egypt told the Jewish slaves that, that they needed to kill all of their firstborn sons. The Hebrew midwives refused, and they just lied about it. And they said, these Jewish women, they pop these babies out, and they're toddlers by the time we get them. Yeah, they, they, they lied, and they were blessed for that. Um, you know, I think of Peter and the apostles before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities who said, we command you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, no. And they went out and told everybody about Jesus. I think of Abigail and Nabal. Abigail, a woman who feared God. And Nabal, her husband, whose name meant foolish, who was opposed to God. And, and, and as a wife, uh, a godly response for her actually meant uh, uh, disobeying her husband to align with God's people. I think of the Jewish musicians who were taken captive to Babylon, and the Babylonians mocked them, and they said, Oh, sing to us some of your songs of Zion. Sing to us about your great and powerful God that we totally trampled underfoot. Tell us about your great country that you'll never see again. Tell us about the songs of Zion. And they hung up their instruments in civil disobedience and refused. It doesn't mean forgiving and forgetting. It doesn't mean being a good boy or girl. It doesn't mean yielding to whatever your enemy wants. So what does it actually mean to love your enemy? Once you've gotten to the point where you can label them properly, what does it actually mean to love them? It means releasing any claim of judgment over them. This is forgiveness. It's what Jesus speaks about in verse 37 when he says, Do not judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn. You will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And that's something you offer to God. Uh, God, I release this person from judgment. Uh, it means giving up any and all personal vengeance. No pound of flesh. Jesus describes this in verse 28 as returning a blessing to those who curse you. Uh, that means no aggression, passive or otherwise. You may still want vengeance, even after forgiving them. You may get very, very angry, but it's trusting that desire for vengeance to God and not taking it into your own hands. And it means paying down their debt for them. That's what forgiveness is. Yeah, because when somebody has hurt you and wronged you, you know, they owe you a massive debt. The debt they owe you is one that they will never be able to repay, not in a billion years. It is so massive because it is a debt that they have incurred by desecrating the image of God in you. And it's saying, God, I am not going to demand that they pay down this debt for me. Because that would be vengeance. I am going to pay down their debt for them. And that may mean you may still be very angry for years, even after you've forgiven. Why are you angry? Because you're paying down someone else's debt. But forgiveness is something you offer to God, saying, Lord, I let go of this and entrust it to you. 
which means actively seeking their benefit. In verse 31, what does Jesus say? He says, do to others as you would have them do to you. It means treating them better than they have treated you. Jesus says in verse 28, pray for those who mistreat you. Are you praying? If they're still alive, are you praying for that face that God showed you at the beginning? Are you praying for them? Are you, I, when I've been in conflict with people, one of the things I've tried to discipline myself to do is to pray for them and their family every single night that God would bless them and shine his face upon them, turn his face toward them and give them his peace. That he would show them where they are wrong and convict them. This is Jesus saying to pray for your enemies. Surely in this context, it means praying for their repentance praying that they would realize what they've done, that God would convict them of it, that he would bring them to a place where they can, can own that and seek forgiveness and actually see the power of God begin to work in their lives. It doesn't mean praying that God will give them more worldly power so they can abuse more people. No, it's praying for the prosperity of their soul. It's got to be for their benefit. That's when it becomes love. Now, well, what if they're not repentant? What if they don't care? What if they're proud of what they did to you? Or what if they're just not here any longer? Forgiveness, you offer it to God. You say, God, I do things that annoy you every single day. And I do. And you keep forgiving me. And so I forgive them too. Forgiveness, though, it's not the same thing as reconciliation. You see, forgiveness opens the door to the possibility that you would be willing to be reconciled, but what really opens the door to reconciliation is when they come to you and confess their sins and seek your forgiveness. When somebody comes and says, I'm realizing now what I've done to you, and I'm seeing the damage, and I don't even know all the damage that I've done, but what I've done is evil. It is so heartless. And, and will you please forgive me? That confession opens the door for more than forgiveness. That confession opens the door to go from forgiveness to actual reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is not trust. You know, trust doesn't come until you've seen them act in a changed way toward you for a long period of time and redevelop the trust. But I see this in, in marriages where there is that initial forgiveness. And then there is this sense of of when they actually come to you and seek forgiveness and, and own what they've done, that opens the door for relationship. But, but it doesn't immediately get you to a healthy marriage. It, it gets you reconciled so that you can begin the process of building trust. Love your enemy, Jesus says. To love them, you have to forgive. You have to pray for them. You have to release to them all your desire for judgment. I remember one guy years ago who, um, he was kind of thin-skinned, took offense at a lot of stuff. He had a long history that, that caused him, set him up for that kind of cycle. But uh, I remember once sitting down with him and, and somebody had slighted him and he was really upset and he just would not forgive the person. He says, I will never forgive him. I cannot forgive him. I cannot forgive him. Why can you not forgive him? I cannot forgive him because he really hurt me. And I told him, okay, but those are the only people God ever calls you to forgive. 
God doesn't call you to forgive people that you have a personality conflict with. Personality differences aren't sins. The only people he ever calls on you to forgive are the people who actually wronged you in reality. If you can't forgive them, it says more about you than it does about them. See, if you can't release that as forgiveness, it's going to continue to control you, and it's going to come out in your life. Jesus warns us about unforgiveness with a severity rarely seen in his, in, in his Gospels. You know, when he says, forgiven, you'll be forgiven. But, but the measure that you use toward your abuser is the, is the measure that, that God will use toward you. He says, this is a test, litmus test of the degree to which you get the gospel. Whether you really are able to move from being forgiven yourself to forgiving those who have done evil to you. How is this possible? Jesus is opening the door to freedom here. How is it possible? You're hearing it every Sunday. I pray God's giving you ears to hear it every Sunday. You cannot love your enemy until you have been loved. That is the key to living love. You see, this is what Jesus did for us. We are, yes, sinned against, and all of us carry those wounds, but we're also sinners. Sinners not only against other people, but ultimately against God, because even when we wrong your spouse or you wrong your friend or you wrong a coworker or you wrong some political authority with your words, even when you disrespect the image of God in other people, understand what you're really disrespecting is the image of God in them. And God takes that very personally. And so when we wrong one another, we are wronging the one whose image they bear, albeit bearing it poorly at times. And what Jesus did, seeing my sin so massive, so infinite, so inexcusable, so directed against God, my hostility, my arrogance, my pride, my impatience, my anger, my judging heart, all of that, what Jesus did was he took all of that onto himself on the cross. That's why every Christian church has a cross in it. Sometimes Jesus is on there, sometimes he's not. But, but, but we see it at communion where Christ himself has taken on our debt, our sin. And he's paid off your debt for you fully, finally, and forever on the cross so that you bear your sins no more. They have been paid and paid in full and there is no double jeopardy with God. That's the cross. God sacrificing himself for his enemy. We've got another photo here. Can we get that other photo? This is a guy on the left, Roy Klein. Roy was an Israeli officer in 2006. He was walking along a wall with his troops. When a grenade came over the wall, it was lobbed by a Hamas militant. It landed right there in the midst of all of his troops. Some of his troops were were 18, 19 years old. They were just doing their mandatory year-long service. And as he saw that grenade fall among his colleagues, among his boys... He cried out the Shema, Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he threw himself onto the grenade right as the grenade exploded. And he took into his body the full force of the blast. He saved all of his boys. He saved all of his colleagues. And as he bled out on the pavement, he took his phone and he called in to report his own death. That's sacrifice for another. That's giving up your life out of love for someone else. But I want you to imagine that it wasn't 
his boys, his fellow soldiers who were surrounding him. I want you to imagine instead that he had been kidnapped by Hamas militants and was held captive and an Israeli grenade came over the wall and landed in their midst. See, that's what Jesus did. He threw himself on the grenade for his enemies. The Bible says it's when we were his enemies that Christ died for us. Jesus looked at that grenade falling in our midst, and he understood that that grenade that he jumped on was a whole lot more than physical death. That grenade was the wrath of God against all injustice and hatred and selfishness and cruelty of all of humanity through all of time. The full weight of the righteous judgment of God against evil and hate and injustice. There, blowing up in our midst. And Jesus looked at that grenade and he looked at you and me. And he imagined us being taken out. He knew we would never be able to survive the blast. We were not capable of it. So God the Son threw himself upon that blast. And God the Son took the full blast of the wrath of God for all of humanity's sin throughout all of time. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was dying for his enemies because he was loving his enemies. That's good. Thank you. Uh, God, the Bible says here, is merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back because God is merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. Merciful to me. Merciful to you. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And Jesus says, when you start living this way, when you begin blessing those who curse you, when you begin praying for those who abuse you, when you begin lending and giving them things, knowing you're never going to see a nickel in return, he says, that's when everybody will know that you are sons of my Father in heaven. I remember when I started at seminary years ago, there was a brand new instructor. He was a a professor of, of, of Hebrew and Semitic language, tall, lanky guy with a big carrot top head of hair. Uh, his name was Jack. And, uh, and I remember there were times around the admin building when you would see this little boy walking around, a little pasty white kid, skinny with freckles and a big mop of red hair, and everybody knew whose kid he was. That was Jack's boy. Why? He looked just like his father. And when you forgive your enemy, And when you love them, Jesus is saying, you are sons of your Father in heaven. Reverend Wade Watts had his first encounter with Johnny Lee Clary at a KOMA radio talk show. Clary arrived late, and as he walked into the studio, Wade Wade Watts thrust out his hand and said, Hi, Johnny, good to meet you, shook his hand. and, And Johnny Lee Clary pulled it back, and he just looked at his hand in disgust. And Reverend Wade said, don't worry, Johnny. It don't rub off. Afterwards, he took him outside. And in the parking lot, Reverend Wade took his little baby girl, Tia, and he showed his baby girl to Johnny Lee Clary and said, now, Johnny, you can't honestly tell me that you hate this little girl. And Clary was speechless. And that's when the anonymous phone calls began to come into the Watts house. There'd be threats 
death threats, racist epithets, names called, curses made, threats and warnings, always in a disguised voice. And every time, Reverend Wade would speak into the phone and say, Well, hello, Johnny. It's so kind of you to be thinking of me. God bless you, son. Jesus loves you, Johnny. And then came the cross burning across the street from his house. Men in sheets were facing their home. His sons and daughters were looking out the windows in fear, and out of the front door strolls the Reverend Wade Watts with a smile on his face. Boys, what are you all dressed up for tonight? Halloween's not for four more months. If I'd have known you were going to build a fire like that, I'd have brought some hot dogs and some marshmallows. And as always, may God bless you, Johnny. Jesus loves you, Johnny. One day, Reverend Watts was eating in a diner when Johnny and several men dressed in white sheets walked into the restaurant. And you could hear every, every eye in the place suddenly turned to these men as they walked up to the Reverend Wade. You could hear, it was so quiet, you could hear the fans circulating air overhead. And, 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 and Johnny sits down across from, Ray, from, from, from Wade Watts and he says, uh, 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 Your kind aren't welcome here. If you care for your safety... You get up and leave this place right now. He looked down at Wade's plate. He said, before you touch that chicken, you better understand that I'm going to do to you whatever you do to that chicken. Reverend Watts picked up the chicken and he kissed it. Even the Klansmen were laughing. And as always, Reverend Wade looked up at Johnny, stared him in the eyes and said, may God bless you, Johnny. Jesus loves you, Johnny. Another anonymous call came. This time, Wade continued beyond that. He said, I'm praying for you, Johnny. And then he continued over the phone, right then and there, to offer out loud a prayer for Johnny Lee Clary, that God would forgive his sin. Prayed that Johnny would see the love of Jesus, that he'd experience conversion. He prayed that he would turn from the path of hate to experience the love of God for sinners like us. And then there was another fire at the church and more harassment. And then there was silence. Nothing. It was a decade that passed before Reverend Wade Watts received another phone call from Johnny Lee Clary. Reverend Wade, do you remember me? Well, hello, Johnny. What brings you to call an old friend like me? Johnny explained that his girlfriend had rejected him and the FBI was investigating him. His life was a mess. But Johnny told Reverend Wade that he had started attending a church recently. He explained that God had convicted him of his sin and that he'd just become a Christian. He was calling to ask Wade Watts to please forgive him for all the things that he had done to him, to his church, and to his family. And as Watts listened to his confession, he told Johnny that he'd already forgiven him long ago, but that his confession now opened the space for something more than forgiveness. Johnny, you have a story to tell, and you're going to tell it at my church this Sunday morning. Johnny hedged. Uh, These people are going to hate me. Well, Johnny, they may be tempted to hate you, but they're not going to hate you. These people know Jesus. These people know love. Okay, Reverend Watts, 
I'll be there at your church on Sunday if, if I can find it. Well, you ought to be able to find it, Johnny. You burned it down twice. That Sunday, some members of the church didn't show up. They were afraid because a Klansman was speaking. Uh, a former imperial wizard of the KKK, they didn't feel safe. It was understandable, but most of them came. And as Johnny got up and began to share what all God had done in them, as he began to share what he had done to Reverend Wade, to their pastor, what he had done to their church, what he had done to the pastor's family, as he began to confess all of it, he began to weep uncontrollably. He was stumbling over his words. The tears were flowing. The only white guy in this African-American church, and as he was weeping there, Reverend Wade, 20 years older than him, walked up to him in his suit and tie, put his arms around him, and held him. And for the first time ever, Johnny Lee Clary put his arms around an African-American pastor and hugged him back. He shared more about how he had learned that Jesus could forgive even really evil people. He'd asked Jesus' blood to wash away his sins, and he'd asked God to give him a new life. And as the two of them embraced, the entire congregation spontaneously broke out in a chorus of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That Sunday at the close of the worship service, Wade's own teenage daughter, Tia, that baby in the parking lot, now a teenage young woman, walked forward and for the first time in her life confessed Jesus as her Savior and requested baptism. Tia had stated that she could never follow Jesus after what she'd watched her father go through. She had watched him be abused and humiliated. She had seen a burning cross outside her bedroom window as a little girl. She had seen so much injustice, so much evil. How could God care about us in the face of such abuse? Where was God in all of that? What, what good did it do her papa to turn the other cheek to his abuser? And then she listened as the man behind all of that abuse confessed every last bit of it and asked forgiveness. And Tia saw the gospel was real. She saw that Jesus is alive, that Jesus restores, that Jesus loves, and that Jesus heals, that God is merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. Reverend Wade watched his daughter, so hardened by the pain, come to Jesus. And the only thing he could say was this. Only Jesus would use a Klansman to save my baby girl. Johnny Lee Clary was later ordained a pastor. He was the only white pastor in the Church of God in Christ. All because a follower of Jesus lived love in the face of tremendous evil. He lived loving his enemy. And he learned that from Jesus, who loved us even when we were his enemies. He loved us into his family and placed his name upon us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have loved us even when we were your enemies, Lord, that you have loved us and you have made yourself our father. You have delighted over us because you looked at the cost, the penalty, the debt due our sin. And you were not about to watch us 
pay that debt ourselves. But you gave up your son so that he might pay it for us because you, Father, have loved us and incorporated us now into him. And so we consecrate to you now the elements on this table, Lord, that you would bring good news to victims and good news to victimizers, that you might bring them together in Christ as your own people, set free, transformed by love. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.